Now, we've talked about those three eminent theologians that I mentioned the first day, Sigmund Freud, Carl Rogers, and B.F. Skinner. And we must take that seriously. As I said, they are teaching theology, bad theology, but theology. They are not simply scientists doing something scientific. They are not simply mechanics working on people in some mechanical way, but they are theologians talking about God and man and the universe and saying that without the Spirit of God, without the word of that living God, that men can be changed in such a way that they can live adequately in this world. That's theological heresy. And we have to recognize that fact. Yesterday I tried to show you that theology cannot be divorced from counseling, that you must have your theology in hand, and you must not only know it, but you must use it and the implications of that theology for your counseling, that you must go to the Word of God and know what it says, know what it says systematically, know all that it says about a given subject, and be able to take that systematic, total, theological approach to that area of life and apply it practically in life and ministry as you counsel men and women. And we try to do just a little theology yesterday with you in trying to answer the question whether you could counsel a, an unbeliever. And we saw that you can't because in the scriptures counseling has to be done at a level of depth it has to be done through transforming the heart of a man. It's a matter of sanctification. And no unbeliever can be sanctified. He must first be regenerated before sanctification can take place. And so we said that what you must do is pre-counsel him. Or, as we home folks say, evangelize him. Now, today I want to go just one step further. Since we can't do much in this week and four sessions together, I'm just kind of sampling a few things for you. I want to go even beyond saying that your theological, biblic biblical theological presuppositions and principles must undergird all that you do, and the implications of those principles must come continually into contact with your uh, approach to counseling. I want to go further and say that even the methodology that you use must either be biblically directed or biblically derived. That you cannot even go around to Freudian or Rogerian or Skinnerian or some other system and take methodology from that system and use it in some kind of an integrated way with your biblical counseling. Methodology in a good thinker's system, and these three men, for example, are rather consistent thinkers, will always grow out of and be consistent with his presuppositions at every point. And so he will build a methodology 
that will get him from point A to point B with the least amount of deviation. He will design a methodology that will achieve the goals that he believes ought to be achieved. Freud, for example, believed that the problem with human beings was what others did to them in early life. And so he designed a methodology that would get him in a straight line, taking the shortest distance from that problem to what he believed would be its solution, a methodology that was totally consistent with that basic presuppositional stance which he took toward man, toward his biblical, his non-biblical uh, anthropology. He believed that others did it to him. Consequently, he believed that man being this passive victim who was not in control of his own life or his own house, house as he put it, had to have somebody else then readjust him. Since somebody else did it to him, somebody else would have to undo it for him or redo it for him, however you care to express it. And so the expert had to be called in. And the expert would then use a method, a method that was designed to get at what Freud thought was the problem and then move to what Freud thought would be the solution to that problem. And the method was psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Psychoanalysis being an archeological hunt for all of the people and all of the things that the people did to this person throughout his past so that after you upturned every flat sto stone and found what kind of vermin lurked beneath it, grandma, the Sunday school teacher, overstrict parents, whoever those vermin might be, then as they crawled out under this torturous process of psychoanalysis, as you analyzed the person's total past or as close as you could get to it, you could see who did what, where, when, and how to it. And once having discovered that, then the process of psychotherapy would take place in which you would become grandma as the therapist or the Sunday school teacher or the overly strict parents and re-socialize him in a new and better way that would cause a cessation of the conflicts within him between his id and his superego that had been set up by the wrong standards that had been socialized into him in the first place. Now all the methodology, including free association, lying on the couch, letting your mind move from one thing to the next and so on, all the methodology, including such things as uh, the ability to to somehow or other take the place of grandmother, the ability to take the place of the, of the overly strict parent or whatever. All of the steps of methodology were consistent, were consistent with and grew out of the presuppositions that Freud had. And you just cannot take the methodology that was designed to produce certain effects and pull it out of the the Freudian system and take it over here and plug it into a biblical system and find that, a, that it will fit and that it will produce the ends that a biblical system ought to have. 
because Freud designed consistently a methodology that would produce the ends that he wanted. And one of the great issues in our day is, can we as Christians take the methodology of non-Christian systems and integrate it into our system? And the answer is no. No, no, a thousand times no. When you pull the branch of Freudian methodology, you are unconsciously pulling up the trunk of the tree, the roots, and all the dirt as well that comes with it. And you will contaminate your biblical principles and your biblical system when you plug into it a foreign and alien element, a methodology that is designed to produce something that is at odds with the biblical position. And I want to emphasize most emphatically that point by showing you in one example today how you cannot use that and how positively, since we're putting the emphasis on the positive side today, you must use a biblical methodology designed to achieve the goals and the purposes that God himself had in giving us his word. Listening is a subject about which we have heard a great deal in the field of counseling. Carl Rogers, whose basic presupposition, remember, we examined on Monday, is that man at the core of his being is essentially good and therefore has all the answers to all of his problems prepackaged within, and so our methodology is designed to evoke from him his own answers, and it is total heresy to bring from the outside any Bible, any Holy Spirit, any power of God, any transformation, or any directions, or any church, or any advice, or anything at all from the outside. We must bring from within the man his own answers. Carl Rogers designed a methodology that was intended to evoke from man his own answers. And yet Christians everywhere have tried to pick up Rogerian methodology reflecting a person's own ideas back to him, a, Freud, a, a, a Rogerian methodology that really does not produce and cannot produce Christian ends and biblical goals. Now Rogers has told us that listening itself is therapeutic, end quote. Listening itself is a form of counseling. And this notion has become so prominent and so dominant in American thinking today that I would guess if I were not to have prefaced this talk the way that I have and if I had said to you, what do you think about listening? Tell me at least one truism about listening and counseling that at least 50% of you would say something like this. Well, we know that at least if you listen, you can do no harm and you might do a lot of good. You have heard people say that and you have said that. I surely did at one point.
And I know I've heard it everywhere I go. And, of course, you read it again and again, magazines and books and elsewhere. And you may actually believe that, that listening itself has some kind of therapeutic or beneficial value and that it could never do any harm and that it certainly might even do a lot of good. I want to counter that view this morning. That is a view that grows out of a whole Rogerian type listening, which is not really listening at all because Roger says, listen for feelings only. He cuts the man in half, forgets about the intellectual side of him, and is concerned only with the emotional side of him, and that's not listening. Listening is listening to the whole man. And you can't chop him in half with a meat axe the way that Rogers does. But I want to challenge that concept of listening this morning and look to a biblical concept of listening, a biblically directed way of listening to people, whether it be in counseling or anywhere else. Rogers did not tell us how to listen. He told us how not to listen. Long before Rogers ever came on the scene, the Bible told us how to listen. And we don't need Rogers to tell us. We don't need him to lead us astray because God has already spoken definitively about listening in his word. And he has told us many good things, three of which we're going to look at this morning. And these will stand you in good stead in counseling. You notice, therefore, that listening is important in counseling. I haven't denied that for a moment. But I have denied that it is in itself counseling. And that confusion must be cleared up. You know, a battery is an essential item in a car. As I discovered this morning, when trying to get the car that Grace Seminary had loaned me started. <laughs> Anybody want a used key that's worthless? Fortunately, Sue Burnham had two cars here, and uh, that's why I'm here persecuting you this early in the morning. But uh, a battery is absolutely essential to a car. And yet, if you throw the rest of the car away and try to get somewhere on the battery alone, you're not going to get very far. Listening is like that battery, absolutely essential to counseling. But it is not to be equated with counseling. It will get you nowhere except the wrong places if you think that listening is beneficial itself or is a method for counseling or is to be equated in some way with counseling itself. No. Listening is a means to an end. It is not to be confused with the end. It's a piece of a process. It's not to be confused with the whole process. Listening is therefore very important, but it must not be made overly important. Let's see how it can be harmful. I want to counter, as I said, that statement 
that was just made. Suppose a person has been to four or five other counselors, and they failed him. Been to a marriage counselor, let's say, and a psychiatrist, and maybe some other individual in society, or whoever it might have been, and finally, as a last resort, this person comes to you and says, I'm going to try Christian counseling. Maybe God has an answer to my problem. I've tried everything else, but I haven't tried God's way. And so you, as a Christian minister, or as a Christian individual, are pointed out to this person, and he comes to see you for counseling. And he's found no answer anywhere else. And he's desperate. And he has tried all these other ways, and they failed. Now he comes to you. And you've become enamored with Rogerian listening, repeating back to him what he himself says, or just sitting there and going, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, like that. <laughs> Whatever it is that you have effected is your technique. But you listen. And you have also imbibed the view, well, at least listening can do no harm. By the way, Rosarian counseling is so popular, I'm convinced, because it's so easy. Now, they would deny that, but I believe it. You can learn it in half of a weekend. <clears throat> if you're sharp, you might reduce that amount of time. It doesn't take long, and it runs no risks. You didn't give any advice. They can't sue you for that. And so, you see, it's very easy all you got to do is to learn how to repeat in other words and clarify what the person has said himself, get out of the way yourself, and it runs no risk. That's why it's become so popular. But here he comes, and you listen, and you listen, and you listen. And at the end of the hour, he says to you, thank you so much as he pumps your hand. I really appreciate that hour with you, I feel so much better. And he's genuine when he says that. Because he does feel better. He's gotten it off of his chest. He's told it to somebody. The pressure is momentarily off. And he goes out and you feel so good because you say, well, I didn't do anything but listen. But boy, listening really was therapeutic. Look how, how good he felt when he left. He was on top of everything. And that was Monday. And on Thursday, he blows his head off. And you wonder why. Well, here's why. He went everywhere, and there were no answers. As a last resort, he decided to try God. And he came to you, seeking what God's answers were to his problem. And sure, he felt better after the hour because he had gotten it all off his chest and the temporary relief of pressure made him feel better. But four days later, he realized that he had no more answers than before he came. And he realized that he had gone to find God's answer. And he reasoned wrongly, but he reasoned in his mind 
this man is a Bible-believing man, and surely if he knew of any answers that God had, he would have given them to me, but he gave me none, so God himself must have no answers to a problem like mine. Boom! Listening can be very dangerous. Don't ever think that I can do no harm just by listening. It is the most harmful thing that you can do in some cases, especially if you are a Christian and people come to you for God's answer and they're right in coming to you for God's answer and you only listen and they go off thinking God has no answer. Therefore, don't ever hold to that false view. Now what does the Bible say positively about listening? In the 18th chapter of Proverbs, we have three powerful statements on listening. Now these were not statements designed to tell us how to listen in counseling alone. They were three statements that had to do with listening in general. And I don't want you to think that I'm trying to narrow them to counseling only as I talk about them, but I'm going to simply refer them to the counseling and uh, relate them to the counseling process this morning while not in any way intending to limit them to listening and counseling. They're too broad for that. They, they cover all listening and all of life. But because they do, they also tell us a lot about how to listen in counseling. And these are great statements about listening. In the 13th chapter, uh, 13th verse of the 18th chapter, reading from the Berkeley version, here's what we find. He who answers before he hears, it is folly to him and a reproach. If you want to be a fool, if you want to deserve God's reproach and the reproach of men, then you answer before you've heard. That's what this verse is saying. And if you do answer before you've heard, you are a fool and you deserve reproach. Now let's take the converse. If you don't want to be a fool and want to avoid such reproach, then hear, listen and hear all that you need to know before framing an answer to a person's problem that he's trying to present to you. Hear him out fully. Hear all that's essential. So the first principle in listening is God wants you to listen for all the facts, for all the facts that are essential to meeting the person's need. Now, I think that Bible-believing people have a tendency to fall into giving answers too quickly for a number of reasons, but I think charitably speaking, that many times we want to give answers 
too quickly because we're so anxious to help people and we know that God has answered. And so before we've heard enough to really know what's going on in a given case, we jump in with responses and with answers and we pour them on the person. This verse is working us against that. This verse says, hear everything, everything essential to giving a proper answer. Without knowing all that you need to know, there is no way that you can analyze the case properly, no way that you can know what the Bible really has to say about this kind of a matter, no way you can bring a biblical analysis to a person's problem so that you can bring, therefore, a biblical solution to it. You have got to get the facts. People at conferences like this continually come up to me between meetings and on the run in the hall and at a table and that kind of situation, and they say, I've got a case I'm dealing with. What do you think about? And they must think I'm copping out when I say to them, I'm sorry. There's no way that I could give you an answer to that case on the basis of the few data that you could give to me in this brief period of time as we're walking from, uh, is this McLean Auditorium, to room 108. And you know, I would like to be able to ask questions I want to ask of that person. I don't know whether you've asked those questions, and I'd like to see the response that the person makes and hear how the person makes the response, not just hear the exact words themselves. There's no way I could give you a good answer to the problem you've presented. And they must think I'm copping out, but I'm not. I just don't want to give a bad answer. And there's no way to give a good answer. Now, I can speak about principles in general if you raise a principle but I can't speak about specific cases because I have to know the facts and I'd be a fool and I deserve to be reproached if I gave you answers about a case between McLean Auditorium and Room 108. There's no way that I could do that biblically because the Bible says you've got to get all the facts. Now some people try to answer too quickly because they've got a little pat system that they've developed for answering all problems. Some preachers who don't think very deeply in a biblical way about counseling say, take this verse, and they almost tear it out and hand it like a Latin prescription that a person doesn't understand when he reads it. Take this verse three times a day with prayer. It's about how they Spell it out. Now, the Word of God can be used even in such form in spite of their poor way of ministering it. But ordinarily, ministering the Word means interpreting it as well and applying it and helping people to learn how to implement it in their lives because they don't know how to interpret, apply, and implement the Scriptures in their daily living. And so it's a lot more than just tearing it out and handing it to a person in pray and say, pray and read. By the way, when those Latin prescriptions go to the 
to the pharmacist, have you ever noticed how the pharmacist always goes in the back room? <laughs> you know what he's doing? He's getting on the phone. He calls up the, the physician. He says, all right, Bill, I got another one of these things here. What on earth did you write? <laughs> and that's just about how that verse looks. To a lot of people, when they read it, they think, how am I to understand this verse and what does it mean to me in my situation? If you don't explain all that, he doesn't really know. And you can't explain how to implement it until you know the person's situation thoroughly. In fact, when you know it thoroughly, you might pick four other verses that you have to explain instead of that. Sometimes poor doctrine leads to answering before you have really heard. For some people, there's one answer to all problems. There is a system called Spiritual Therapy Incorporated, which purports to have one answer to all problems, though they don't express it that way. That is, get out of the way and let go and let God. Your whole problem is, is that you're trying to do it for yourself. That sounds good, but the problem is that isn't the way the Bible puts it. The extreme out here which it fights against is what we all call the arm of flesh or self-help programs. And so you don't do it by yourself. You let God do it for you, but the way it comes out is God does it instead of you. But the Bible doesn't teach either extreme. The Bible teaches the biblical center that we are to do what God says not by our own strength, but by the wisdom and the power of the Spirit who gives us wisdom from his inerrant word and who empowers us to understand it and to live according to it. But we do it by his wisdom and strength. That's the biblical center. And to go to either extreme to say, Jesus does it for me instead of me, or to say, I have to do it without him altogether on my own. They're both wrong. If spiritual therapy were correct, then 1 Corinthians could be reduced to three paragraphs. Hi, guys, so long, fellas, and in the middle, let go and let God. Some people fail to recognize true differences, and so they give answers too quickly. You had a great case, very successful, cleaned it up last week. And here comes another case, and you look at it superficially, listen to it initially, and it looks like it's just the same sort of thing. And man, you just aced this other case. You say, a piece of cake. And you go ahead, and without gathering the data adequately, you move ahead to the answer. You've stereotyped these people because of a few data that you had at the beginning that looked as though they were getting at the same thing. And then four weeks down the pike, your wheels are spinning and you wonder why. And when you go back and gather the data, you find out that this isn't at, in any respect like that first case, except in those first initial statements. People are different. There are certain basic themes that we all have, but there are many differences and many variations on those themes. Every person's life is important enough to gather all the data about his situation, never stereotype people. Certainly don't put them into four kinds of temperamental moods or variations, combinations thereof. 
That's Greek philosophy, not biblical teaching. And then people fail to recognize the proper levels of response. Somebody says, I'm nervous all the time. Now you can deal with that problem on that level. You can say, okay, here's a pill. And a lot of physicians and psychiatrists do. But suppose you gather more data and you say, when did your nervousness begin? And he says, uh, well, sometime around April 15th. <laughs> and after you've gathered those data, you say, uh, does it have anything at all to do with income tax? And you discover it does. And then you can deal with the problem on that level and get him to be, to get another return and go down and get it straightened out because he had been practicing income tax evasion in response to income tax invasion. <laughs> but still, if you keep probing, you may find, and you don't always, and don't create problems where they don't exist, you may find that there's a third level of response and reason for his nervousness. You may find that he often has been nervous in the past because of lying and cheating. And this may not be a one-time throw, but an underlying pattern of life. And you'll have to deal with that differently than if it was a one-time event. And so there are three levels, at least, on which you can deal with a problem. The level of irritation, the level of the particular problem that led to this particular irritation, and the level of an underlying way or pattern of life. Some people never get down to all the levels. They don't hear all they need to hear. Job's counselors failed to gather data because they had their minds made up before they even came as to what was wrong, and so they didn't gather data. And then when Job protested and said, Hey, fellows, you got it all wrong, they wouldn't in love listen to him. And so they failed to meet his real need. His need was not, what do you do when you've sinned and God gives it to you as a result of your sin? But his problem was, what do you do when you're getting it in the neck not as a result of your sin? And so they failed to help him and he stumbled because his counselors failed to help him. And so there are many reasons why a person might answer before he hears. We've examined a few. Watch out for that principle. Second principle is in the 15th verse. A discerning mind gets knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks information. Listening is not a passive practice. Listening is an active practice. Notice the wise discerning person doesn't just sit and soak. He doesn't just sit and take whatever it is that the counselee offers, but he knows ahead of time what he needs to know. He has thought through the process of listening and gathering data and gathering information, and he has a procedure, and he has a means, and he has a method for covering the waterfront and not missing 
some areas. Because he believes in verse 13, he practices verse 15. He goes after data. He seeks. He gets knowledge and information. He doesn't just sit and take what comes. Counselees may mean to give you all the facts, but they may not know how to give you all the facts. Counselees may try to give you everything that's necessary, but they themselves, being confused, people may not know what is important and what is not important. And so the counselor has to be in control of the data gathering process and the listening process at all points. And some people who are social bores and have lost all of their friends and have, n have nobody who will listen to them anymore because all they ever talk about is themselves and themselves and themselves and people have drifted away from them. Now they come for counseling and here's somebody who has said, I'm all ears, tell me about yourself. Well, they just are happy as a lark and they start pouring out every fact of their existence, whether it's important or relevant or anything else and you have to say to them, whoa, how about this? and continually direct the conversation to areas of importance. Some people give you nothing, others give you too much, some go in wrong direction, some repeat one area and will never move off of it. You must get what you know you need, and so you have to know what you need in order to go after it. In the manual we've talked a lot about all those kinds of things. Can't do it here. But it's very important for you to Listen actively, gathering, going after the right data, having a procedure and a methodology for getting it, not just taking what comes on its own. God wants you to listen for all the facts. He wants you to listen actively for the facts. And notice what it is that you're listening for, knowledge and information, factual data, not merely feelings. But finally, in verse 17, he who states his case first seems right until another comes to examine him. That's true in a court of law, but it's also true in a counseling context, as well as many others. There are two or more sides to every issue. And I have never understood why counselors bring in the husband alone and hear his distorted story. Then bring in the wife alone, hear her distorted story, and put two totally distorted stories together to try to get the truth. That is sheer stupidity, as well as being unscriptural for other reasons because that husband and wife will begin to say negative things behind the other person's back and we're not to take gossip and we're not to accept it and we are not either to allow persons to speak negatively about other persons behind their back. James, for example, in the fourth chapter and the eleventh verse says that we must not allow one person to kataleleo another person. And if you want to know what kataleleoing another person means, it means talking him down, speaking him down, speaking down about him, speaking negatively about him ripping him up and tearing him up behind his back. We're not to allow that. 
And so the thing that we must do is to bring in all the interested parties in any case. And if you can't get one of them, you only talk about the parties that are there in a negative way. They can talk about themselves and say, I failed this way and so on, but you don't let them talk negatively about people who aren't there. You say you can say all the nice things you want, but you're not going to talk those people down. I'm not going to allow it. It's bad enough when you've got them both there to get the facts straight. It really is. I remember one very, very interesting case. In came a little frail woman about this tall and a big bruiser of a husband. Looked like a linebacker. And I looked at these two and I wondered about how they were matched and they sat down and she said, he hit me, he hit me, he hit me in the face. It sounded just like that, just like a football cheer. <laughs> it really did. I guess she had rehearsed it so often to so many people. And I looked at this big brute and I thought, hitting her in the face? Well, how could you do that, you brute? You know, that's what I thought. I didn't say anything, but I look at him, you know, this little thing over here and he was up here. And I said, did you hit her in the face? And he said, yeah. I said, well, tell me about it. He said, I'll tell you. He said, I came home and I found her utterly hysterical, screaming and crying and rushing around the house. And he said she, she had her fists and, he, and she was hitting her head as hard as she could with her fist. And he said, I was scared to death that she was going to injure her brain or something. He said, he said, you see how frail and how small she is. So he said, I didn't know what to do, but she was hysterical and she wouldn't stop. So he said, I did what I always see him do in the movies and television. He said, I slapped her in the face to bring her to her senses. <laughs> what a difference when you get the other side of the story. Now that was right in his presence she was trying to put it over on me. How bad do you think it is when the other one isn't there? Get both sides and have them all present so they can examine the other party. This presupposes that all the parties are there. He who states his case first seems right until another comes to examine him. You need the balance of both sides of a picture when you begin to gather data if you want true data and a true analysis of the case. Well, the time is about shot. At least I didn't go to sleep, <laughs> though you may have. But let me encourage you to listen. Learn to listen well. Think a lot about listening in terms of biblical principles. Think a lot about your methodology and be sure that your methodology it, at all points is either biblically directed as these statements directly speak to the issue of listening or that it is biblically derived. You have been able to take general principles of some sort and move, generalize with those principles, move from those general principles to specific situations and develop a methodology that no, though not specifically stated in the verse, is grows out of biblical principles and at every point is consistent with them. You cannot borrow 
the enemy's weapons and use them effectively. You must use God's weapons in this battle for men's lives and for the honor of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do the hard work. And this is why it hasn't been done really. Do the hard work of producing that methodology yourself. Don't go the easy route of pulling up the Freudian tree, Rogerian tree, or the bitter roots of Skinnerianism. Build with biblical building blocks.